when I started researching, I had, you know, no idea I was going to end up thinking that viruses didn't exist and that they'd never been scientifically proven. The whole virus thing falls within what we can call the germ theory of disease. This is so enmeshed in our culture and our way of thinking and our understanding of health and biology that it does take a lot to sort of get your head around, really, the fact that maybe this isn't actually true. Hello, everyone. That was today's guest, Daniel Thompson-Mills. A period of ill health led Daniel on an investigative journey, culminating in his writing a book titled The Myth That Viruses Cause Disease and the Nature of Illness, A Treatise on Bioterrain Medicine. In this interview, I asked Daniel to talk us through that intellectual journey to a position most people would consider extremely radical. It's a journey that includes Daniel working as a lawyer on the McLeibel trial, where he witnessed nefarious police infiltration of left-wing groups. Quick disclaimer, Daniel talks about various health treatments that I know nothing about and certainly wouldn't recommend prior to copious research. With that out of the way, I start by asking him how he came to believe viruses on things that are causing disease. Well, that was a long process and that began at university where I met, well, I became really good friends with somebody who called himself a vegan, which was completely, you know, unheard of at that time. <laughs> Nobody had really heard the word. I certainly hadn't. Through my association with, with that friend, I became very interested in animal rights issues and that led on to environmental issues. Subsequent to that, I traveled around the world. You know, I did the, the classic uh, round the world trip and I met a couple of people on that from Canada and their perception was more uh, really in tune with spiritual things and being aware of how dysfunctional our culture is really. And I was seeing that for myself and it went from there. I was very into animal rights and environmental issues and uh, although I was working as a solicitor I felt very much that I, I wasn't I didn't want to be part of the corporate world and that led on to getting involved in something called the McLeibel case which was a trial of two people um, Dave Morris and Helen Steele being sued by McDonald's the fast food chain for libel over a leaflet called what's wrong with mcdonald's everything they don't want you to know i sort of got involved in helping the two people being sued and actually became the the manager of the campaign for that and that took over my life for five years and um i certainly in that time my politics moved very much into anarchist and i saw in great detail how corporations operate and all of that was being examined in minute detail in in the trial which became the longest trial in english legal history in the end so that's it in a nutshell and and after that people who had been involved in mclibel and were also generally involved in the activist scene in the in the late 90s there we went on to set up a low impact permaculture community in a woodland and I lived there for 18 and a half years. So, um, yeah, that's my progression in a nutshell. Just let me ask you a little bit about McLeibel, because that was a big news story at the time. It involved Keir Starmer, 
as a, a defence lawyer, didn't who went on to be leader of the Labour Party. And I wonder what what kind of practices did you see corporations, in this case McDonald's, engaging in, and also the state? Because I know that Helen Steele is one of the ladies who had a relationship with a man who turned out to be an undercover police officer and was therefore engaging in less than consensual sexual relations, say, and this became a big scandal in Britain for the undercover police. And it's kind of strange the way the, the police seem to be. Or, well, maybe, I don't know, would you say the police were really out to protect corporations by infiltrating more kind of left-wing groups at that time? Well, let's start by looking at McDonald's and what they were doing. So they sued over a leaflet called What's Wrong With McDonald's? Everything They Don't Want You To Know. And that was a leaflet produced by a small anarchist group in London. And it was being handed out outside McDonald's stores, but only in very small numbers. But McDonald's just did not like any criticism of them whatsoever. Actually, the leaflet was choosing McDonald's really as a, a particularly well-known example of how multinational corporations work as a whole. So really, it was a criticism of um, yeah, multinational corporations. And obviously, with the Ronald McDonald character, there's a particularly insidious aspect to McDonald's. So the, the, the leaflet covered all aspects of their operations from the, um, the unhealthiness of their food, although they promote it as nutritious, how they hook children in through the Ronald McDonald character and, and happy meals and all that sort of thing, and get them to pester their parents to you know go to mcdonald's the environmental aspects through all the pack the the disposable packaging that's produced and it also went on to discuss rainforest destruction uh, destruction of tropical forests for beef rearing etc and how the workers are treated through low pay and be, the mcdonald's being anti-union so it, you know it, it went across these criticisms went across the board now mcdonald's you know they sued or threatened to sue anybody who dare criticism from even from prince philip and the guardian down to student unions groups so they were paranoid about any criticism and uh, sued for libel now prior to that they had actually employed not one but two firms of private investigators to infiltrate this very small anarchist group that was really on at the time on the verge of folding because there wasn't enough people coming along to the meetings but all of a sudden these other people these new people were coming along and actually kept the group going bizarrely enough and all this came out later actually in the trial at the same time the police were infiltrating protest groups a, a lot and one of the groups that they infiltrated was london greenpeace we're talking about the Metropolitan Police here, and there, we now know that there was also information being passed between the police and McDonald's and vice versa through their combined investigations into groups like London Greenpeace. And wow, I mean, because it, it went deep because some of these people, police infiltrators, um, not only in London Greenpeace, but in other groups, went on to have relationships with women, you know, men having relationships with women. It, it's just completely horrendous that this happened and has traumatized these women because, 
you know, um, Helen Steele, who was the one of the McLibel defendants, it had happened to her. And the person that was, you know, undercover while having a relationship with her made out he had mental issues and all of a sudden disappeared. Now, she was distraught. She was, you know, completely in love with him. She thought that, that it was just a normal relationship. And she spent years looking for him. And it was only when she went into the register of births and deaths, she found the birth certificate and realized that this was the birth certificate of somebody who died very young as a child. And she realized what had happened at that point. And anyway, cut a long story short, this all of this police shenanigans is now being examined in minute detail in a very long-running public inquiry, which is generally called the Spy Cops Inquiry, uh, but is receiving very little attention in the mainstream news. Yeah, it's an amazing. I mean, you think of if the McDonald's spies had done that, had gotten because there were some women who I don't know, I can't remember if Helen was one of them, just started reading her book. Uh, but some of the women were pre got pregnant through these police officers. Yes, I know. <laughs> it went that far. Yeah, you imagine if McDonald's had done that, I think it really would have damaged them as a company. And yet the Metropolitan Police kind of skip out of these things. Indeed. With some scrutiny in The Guardian, but no real impact. They hand over some public money, but that's it. Yes, yes. Well, um, some of these women have actually, you know, managed to get financial compensation. But even so, it doesn't make up for all the trauma that they receive. I've been interested in the 9-11 truth movement, and I've been interested in, as, as an offshoot of that, the 7-7. And there's a lot of speculation in truth movements around police infiltration and people who seem to come into the movements and um, disrupt or plant very dodgy narratives. Yes. Like uh, the, the most interesting one was uh, David Shaler, the MI5 whistleblower, yes. who dropped some interesting information about Libyan assassination plot that MI6 were hatching for Colonel Gaddafi and some stuff about the IRA bombs, and then inserted himself into the 9-11 truth movement. And then two weeks later was talking about holographic planes. And then two weeks after that was declaring himself to be the son of God. And I've spoken to journalists who, a journalist who knew Shayla and rejected any sense that he could be a double agent. He says he's a really pitiful figure now. He's living under a bridge somewhere, having his shoes. And I just wonder how far people would go in this, because it just, it leads to kind of endless speculation, but it's amazing to see how far the Metropolitan Police would go to infiltrate a small group of anarchists who don't seem to be harming anyone and are only a danger maybe to corporations. Well, yes. I mean, now, of course, the surveillance um, that can be done is so much more sophisticated through the internet and mm. tracking people's phones and stuff. So it's probably not actually so necessary to have um, actual physical people infiltrating because you know i'm sure the agencies have many ways that they can just you know keep tabs on everybody otherwise okay so you're you go to this community and i suppose your ideas on a lot of things evolved through that time into positions that differ from the mainstream but what we're principally here to talk about today is a booklet you've produced on viruses or specifically i guess not on viruses on why viruses don't cause disease and this has become a particularly pertinent theme in our, our current era so let's let, tell me about your transition to coming to see virology and health in that way yes while we were living in steward community woodland was the name of the the permaculture project 
um, it was located within Dartmoor National Park. The planning authority was the uh, Dartmoor National Park Authority. Now they were very against us being there right from the word go. We moved there in 2000. We applied for planning permission on the basis of what we were doing was a, uh, an environmental project that was examining and experimenting with ways of sustainable living, which is so important in today's world, etc. And bringing volunteers in to learn woodland skills and uh, experience community and you know understand uh, get an understanding of renewable energy etc well unfortunately as i say Dartmouth national park authority um had a bee in their bonnet about us and this resulted in a long long planning <laughs> saga essentially we applied on three occasions for planning permission uh were turned down by the national park and went to three public inquiries in the end where a planning inspector was deciding between our case and the Dartmouth National Parks case. Um, well, very fortunately, on the first two occasions, we had planning inspectors who saw the value of what we were doing and gave us each time five years of temporary planning permission. So it came to the third occasion. And by this stage, we had been there for uh 15 16 years we'd you know we had a lot of support including respectable organizations so to speak like the the devon wildlife trust the dartmoor society even the parish council and a lot of people supporting us locally but we you know it all comes down to one person this planning inspector anyway he decided unfortunately totally in favor of the national park this was in 2016 so ultimately that meant that enforcement notices kicked in and we uh, had to accept that we had to leave the land and, and the project had to end uh, certainly as a residential project anyway ultimately you know i the rug i found the rug really had been pulled out from under my feet and there was a lot of grief and, and trauma really over that so at that point my health started to decline um a lot of it was to do with the, st the stress of not knowing how i was going to be able to live in the in the the mainstream world if you like and pay the exorbitant rents that that are just the standard these days and pay all the bills etc where because i had been living in a very self-sufficient manner largely with a, just a small amount of money income but I hadn't needed a lot of money income because a lot of my needs were being met from what we were doing on the land, such as growing food and so on. So yeah, it was the, it was the grief and the trauma of this project that I'd given so much to ending or having to end forcibly. And uh, really the stress of not knowing <laughs> where I was going to end up and how I was going to live. From that point, 2016, as I say, my, my health went into slow decline. And I really started losing all my motivation. I didn't really see where my life path was taking me. Ultimately, I got became so depleted, the sort of bottom just fell out of my health in 2020. And uh, <laughs> there was a very synchronicitous uh, thing where, whereby the final straw came about in the same week that the lockdown was announced in March 2020. And um, I ended up hardly being able to walk very bedridden with very little energy. 
so that became what I call my anocerebralis. Gradually, 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 you know, after many months of being in despair and not really seeing a way out of this, towards the end of that year, my health did start to pick up. But along the way, I developed something called shingles, which is in conventional science terms, conventional medical terms, is called a viral illness. And I got that so badly that I ended up spending 11 days in hospital. When I got to the end of 2020 and I was starting to recover my health bit by bit, I was very, very curious to understand what had happened to me. Why had this decline in my health happened? Why had I got so depleted and ended up with osteoporosis, in fact? But at the same time, this whole thing, this whole big massive thing called COVID-19 and the lockdowns and everything had been happening, of course, at the same time. And friends of mine had been saying through 2020, you know, their concerns about what was going on. But I'd really not been able to focus on that at all. I had to only just focus on my health journey, didn't have any energy for it to look at anything else. But at the beginning of 2021, I was curious, so curious about my own health journey and what had happened and particularly what this thing shingles was and why had I, why had I got that but also what is this big thing called COVID-19 what's it all about so I started doing lots and lots of research which I just became absolutely fascinated by and that led on to the discoveries I made through that process I started writing it down partly so that I could understand it better myself, but also because I felt that I had the time and energy to spend on this. And other people who, you know, had, you know, lots of family commitments or work commitments might not have had the time to, to delve into it as deeply as I was. So I wanted to share it with other people. So I started writing this down. And eventually, because of, along the way, lots of people's support and encouragement, I ended up producing a book <laughs> and I'm now doing lots of presentations and talks on it. Okay, so did you find this, what you were uncovering was personally beneficial to the state of your own health? How are you doing now with that? Absolutely, absolutely. My health has just been on an upward curve since that time and really going on an exponential upward curve because... I'm employing a lot of the tools that I've been learning about through this process in my life on an everyday basis. For example, minimizing my exposure to man-made electromagnetic frequencies, eating a diet, which I would say is based on the Western A price model. It's doing things like coffee enemas to detox regularly. And most recently, I've even acquired a Brown's gas machine which is a machine that, that splits water through electrolysis and produces hydrogen and oxygen gas, which you can then breathe. That, that's my latest acquisition, which I'm really enjoying and getting a lot of benefit from as well. Okay, so let's focus on the virology. So I never questioned the existence of viruses, with the exception of I'd heard the whole discussion about HIV and AIDS. And whether there was an HIV virus or not, I didn't really think about that. But I'd heard a reasonable case that there were other factors going on with the disease we call AIDS, in particular AZT, the obviously toxic drug. 
And I actually met Neville Hodgkinson, the journalist who wrote for the Times through the 90s on this, completely randomly met him one time. And we had a discussion uh, about that. So that was always in my consciousness. But measles, polio, chickenpox, never thought to question they were viral until reading the book Virus Mania and seeing a lot of the deconstruction of the science around this. And I'd never questioned that those spikes we saw at the April 2020, the spikes in the excess mortality rate, were due to a COVID virus, in large part anyway. There may be other things like people not going to the hospital when they're having uh, heart attacks or something, but majoritively I, I thought you could only get that from a novel virus. There's a lot of other things I questioned about it. I questioned the wisdom of lockdowns, the unintended consequences of that. Perhaps some people might suggest those consequences are fully intended, but either way, but that it was a virus. And then when I heard this suggested, I had this moment of having to pause the audiobook I was listening to and just stare into the space around me just to entertain that thought of what if this has all been a great illusion? Could that be possible? That, that just seems outrageous to me. And it, I, I'm only so far along with the, the no virus paradigm. Okay. Cause initially I thought, okay, this is like, this is lunatic fringe stuff. And I've had to come back and say, okay, well, a lot of the people doing it don't really appear to be lunatics to me. They appear to be the most sensible, erudite, and logically thinking, critically thinking people in this whole movement. But I can feel the, the cogs and the gears in my head grinding as I make this turn. It's, it's, it's interesting to observe in yourself, because I'd like to think I was on the more open-minded side of the spectrum, but it's interesting when you encounter idea and you, you encounter your own cognitive dissonance, you encounter your own difficulties. So how was it for you to go through that kind of shift to a position where you reject virology on, on the whole? Well, uh, yes. I mean, uh, I had a very similar experience to you. When I started researching, I had, you know, no idea I was going to end up thinking that viruses didn't exist and that they'd never been scientifically proven. And as you say, I found that a lot of the difficulty for me was really moving beyond the conditioning because the, the whole virus thing falls within what we can call the germ theory of disease. This is so enmeshed in our culture and our way of thinking and our understanding of health and biology that it does take a lot to sort of get your head around really the fact that maybe this isn't actually true. What I found through my own journey is that when I'm able to release that conditioning that's when it gets really exciting. And then looking back in hindsight, I can say, well, it's actually bloody obvious there's no viruses. When you know the facts, it just becomes really clear to you. So that's, that's, that was my journey anyway. Yes, yeah, so I can go into some detail now if you like about it all. Yeah, let me just pop one more question and then you can go into detail as you think. So just to say where I'm at, to me, some of it looks obvious. Like the HIV thing, there are really viable contenders for what's causing people to develop that immune deficiency syndrome other than a virus. So you have drugs like poppers and the kind of, uh, well, the, the excessive use of drugs amongst certain communities in the 1980s, and then AZT, the drug that's supposed to treat HIV, is in itself highly toxic. So it's not too hard to see that, how there, there could be other factors there, certainly. And polio is this virus which is around for thousands of years, doesn't really do very much until we start spraying everything with lead arsenic. And then suddenly polio comes alive and starts paralyzing lots of people, continues to paralyze people for about 60 or 70 years until lead arsenic and DDT are banned. Then polio falls away right before the vaccine is introduced for it. So again, 
the idea that the condition poliomyelitis is caused by a virus seems to be really problematic to me. And there just seem to be much better contenders for why people were getting paralyzed through that period. So I'll ask if you agree with me on this in a minute, but to me, they seem like the real strong cases. When I get into things like measles, and I know your book focuses on chickenpox, then I start to think, ah, I'm not sure the case is so solid here, right? Like the idea that chickenpox is some sort of detoxification process that children go through. Then I start to think, is this kind of grasping for something that um, isn't like an, ex an explanation that is ultimately kind of as shaky as the idea it's a virus? I, I don't know. So I've, I've presented that question in a way that's deliberately a little bit antagonistic of your point. So you can like yeah. fire back on it in any yeah. way you, you wish to. Well, there's a simple thing. Okay. If we have somebody who's ill or a group of people who are ill and we think it might be a virus, what we have to do if we're following a proper scientific process is find that virus and show that it causes disease and specifically the symptoms that we're seeing in the people or the person who's ill. Now, there's actually a very simple procedure that we can, that scientists, virologists can go through to, in, in, in fact, find the virus and show it causes disease. The basis of it is a set of logical steps, which was were set out by Dr. Robert Koch in the late 19th century and became known as Koch's postulates. Um, it's a four-step process. Interestingly enough, Dr. Robert Koch, um, although he, he formulated these postulates, he never actually carried them out himself. <laughs> he then went on to ignore them. Yeah, so what essentially you do is you take substance from an ill person. So say, for example, in the case of COVID, you're looking at a respiratory illness, so you'd probably take lung fluid. So that, that ill person has certain symptoms, of course. You take the lung fluid, you isolate and purify a virus from that. You then give it to an experimental host, which would either be a health, healthy person or typically a healthy um, experimental animal. That animal or person then goes on to develop illness with the same symptoms as the original patient. And then what you do is you again isolate and purify the virus from that diseased experimental host. And at that point, you found the virus and you've, you've shown it causes disease. Now, when I'm talking about isolation and purification, this is what you would really imagine those words mean. I mean, isolating means putting just one thing in, you know, there's, you're only seeing one thing or there's one thing in one place. There's not a whole bunch of things. Ultimately, in case of a virus, you'd be looking under an electron microscope and you'd be seeing all the same particles of the same shape, the same, sh the same size and nothing else. This procedure has never been done for any virus. So there's never been any virus that where substance has just been directly taken from an ill person and this procedure has been gone through. And nobody disagrees with it, with this. So Dr. Dr. Tom Cowan, who's somebody who's um, one of my mentors, really, in this whole subject, has written confirmations from 60 governmental institutions around the world 
including, for example, the UK Department of Health and Social, Social Care and the CDC in America, stating, as we've said, that a virus has never been found following Koch's postulates. In other words, directly from any fluid from an ill person. And he also has similar written statements from some of the lead authors of the most important papers on the, quotes, isolation and purification of SARS-CoV-2. The thing that we need to be aware of is that this procedure is not a technical difficulty. And it's been done for similarly sized particles that we're told viruses are. So, for example, um, bacteriophages, which are, you know, similar size to a, a supposed virus. So it's not that it isn't a technical difficulty. And that's important. What do virologists do instead? Well, they do what's called the viral culture method. And that involves virologists taking bodily substance from an ill person, giving it a sort of minimal cleanup, and then they place this unpurified gloop on a monkey's kidney cell culture and then go on to add nutrient in the form of bovine fetal serum. So as I say, this is establishing what they call a viral culture. So at this point, we've combined unpurified substance from an ill person containing a whole mixture of things with two other substances also containing a whole mixture of things. And we made a bit of a brew, in other words. They then look at the culture and nothing happens. <laughs> so what they then do is they start withdrawing the nutrient, the bovine fetal serum. So they're then starving the, the culture. And again, that doesn't produce any, any issue, any problem. So finally, they add two powerful drugs. One's called gentamicin, which is an antibiotic and one's called anthrotericin, which is an antifungal. The rationale for this is that they want to make sure that there's no bacteria or fungi, fungi in, the, in the culture. But what these drugs are is actually very toxic to kidney cells. They're called nephrotoxins. So at this point, the virologists have not only starved the culture, but they've poisoned, they're, they're poisoning it. This results, unsurprisingly, in the culture breaking down the cells um you know breaking down and lots of debris is produced the virologists then look at this brew this sort of broken down brew under an electron microscope and then what you'll see is a whole mixture of different shape and sized particles so there's certainly no isolation going on there and then they point to some of these particles and say, look, there's the virus. We know that's the virus. And it looks like in, in, the, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, it has this little corona, this sort of this crown. That, so we're going to call it a coronavirus. And so the, how they can then describe that as isolation and purification of the virus is just completely ridiculous. Now, how did this whole viral culture method start? Well, it's, if we go back to the original paper, it was done by a, a guy called John Franklin Enders. By that point, there'd been 20 years of the electron microscope and they hadn't been able to find any virus that people said, you know, existed. And John Franklin Enders said, I know how 
to find the virus and he and he did this viral culture method and and that was in relation to the measles virus in fact but at the same time he did a control experiment and in the control in other words where there was no substance from an ill person added into the culture what he said was that the breakdown products that were observed in that control were indistinguishable and that was the word he used indistinguishable from the breakdown products that he found in the culture where substance from an ill person was being added so really at that point that should have been the end of things you know the control showed that actually you're getting the same thing whether there's something from an ill person there or not so there's no possible virus present However, that paper went on to get the Nobel Prize and the viral culture method has been done since. Well, of course, I would contend that that's because the germ theory and in particular the virus narrative is very beneficial to the pharmaceutical industry. And since that time, since John Franklin Enders, every time a viral culture um, ex you know, experiment to find the virus has been done, and they've supposedly found the virus, they have never, underscore never, done a controlled experiment, which is should be just, you know, part of rigorous scientific procedure. Well, do you know what the justification for that is that's given? Well, it does, it does seem so incredible. That's, and I've heard Tom Cowan say that, and I had to pause the tape and think, hey, what? How can that be? <laughs> we, I mean, we can't go delve into the minds of virologists and, uh, you know, and understand how they can just feel that this is acceptable. I don't know. You know, I, the only thing I would say is making a sort of educated guess around it. I would say that virologists and generally, you know, a lot of scientists in the conventional sphere you know they've just been brainwashed really through their education they get told in medical school that there are viruses and the measles virus was found they mm. don't look back at the original papers and see what the method was that was done um, and they just accept that this is how you do it you do a viral culture method and you don't need to do an experiment it's not necessary well that's what that's what came through when i interviewed michael wallach the a director of the documentary series the viral delusion now he'd actually worked previously for the u.s state department and i i wanted to ask about that but i didn't want to ask too much about it i ended up asking a lot about it and <laughs> it worked really well because it made this comparison where he described the entrenched bureaucracy of the state department that people only come in there from ivy league universities and they just have this very narrow vision of the world mm. and that no one would ever think to question that no one would ever think to question u.s support for israel or was yeah. the intervention in Yugoslavia a good thing? You could only look at, was it this much of a good thing? Or was it this much of a good thing? The, the, no radical voices. They didn't even know there were radical voices in, in existence. And that's probably, I think, a good comparison. If we if we have to explaining how a, a science like virology could go on without some grand conspiracy, where all the world's virologists are getting together in smoke-filled rooms and conspiring, that there is just this entrenched paradigm, if you like, this like in the, the Thomas Kuhn, sense of people just adopt certain paradigms about a subject they enter into and they never question the foundations well if we go back to the mclibel trial and my experience there you know during that time we had lots of 
McDonald's executives, both from the UK and the US, giving evidence and being cross-examined by Helen and Dave, as I've talked about, who were just, you know, doing that themselves. They were defendants in person against McDonald's whole team of lawyers. Uh, they had a top QC, etc. But Helen and Dave were just, you know, <laughs> like a dog with a bone. They weren't going to let go. And they were able to really, you know, get a lot of information out of these executives. And they made a lot of admissions along the way. Well, I spent time in the court watching all of this going on. And I could see very clearly, it became very clear to me that some, a lot of the people, a lot of the executives, a lot of the suppliers for McDonald's, you know, the heads of the suppliers and so on, they were as completely brainwashed. They believed this whole McDonald's world, this whole make-believe world of <laughs> the McDonald's fantasy. And yeah, they were just completely brainwashed. But I could also see that there were some executives who were clearly very wily and they really knew, they really knew what they were doing and, you know, what was it, what it was all about. And you just got, a, you know, sort of chill going up your spine when you were around these people. Mm. You know, it wasn't, you know, it felt very unpleasant people, people not in a very good, you know, mental state, really. Now I can say I have infinite compassion for them, you know. And so I'm sure it's the same in the in the pharmaceutical industry, in the mainstream science world yes. as a whole. Um, it, that makes complete sense to me, really. You know, there are definitely people that know, but I think they're a small in number. Ultimately. Yes, I think that's generally the way it works. So sticking with the courtroom analogy, because that's the analogy I just dreamt up on my own mind when I was thinking this stuff through over the past few months. I'm thinking if I was on the jury and polio was on trial for paralyzing all those children i wouldn't find polio guilty because as the defense attorney he get up and say well look plausibly there are these other corporates there's lead arsenic there's ddt same yeah. with hiv i couldn't convict and the most compelling evidence i would find was the defense attorney would stand up and say well what about azt there's plausibly another culprit here another suspect so okay there is but i thought well i'm not so sure about that with measles and chickenpox so perhaps you could explain what you think is going on i know whichever one you want really but i know you've written specifically about chickenpox and a detoxification process could you explain what you think is going on of some of these other illnesses if they are illnesses that we attribute to viruses yes well really i'd like to establish some ground before we get there to be honest yep. can i just sort of begin really with the historical context of this because I, th I think it's very important mm -hmm. You know, so as I say, what we're talking about here is the germ theory of disease. So this is where essentially the body is seen as being at war. You know, your body is a battlefield where, you know, we're being invaded by all these outside pathogens, be they bacteria or be they viruses or whatever. And um, they're trying to get into the body and take over the mechanisms of the cell and so on and replicate and this causes us to get ill in the meantime the body has all these defense forces that it ranges against these outside pathogens uh, you know like antibodies and t-cells and so on and there's a battle going on but you know the pharmaceutical model would say oh no but you know unfortunately our body isn't 
good enough to deal with all of this, to fight off all these things. So we need to support it through pharmaceuticals and through, you know, vaccines and all of this sort of thing. Where does this actually go back to? Because it's very important to realise this. It all goes back to the late 19th century. This whole way of thinking was begun by, in particular, Dr. Louis Pasteur, the Frenchman, and also people like Dr. Robert Koch, who was German, who I mentioned earlier. Really, you know, we know that, that Pasteur, although he was supposedly doing lots of experiments and proving all of this stuff, and this was the pre-virus, really, it was to do with bacteria causing disease and that sort of thing. And, you know, of course, we know Pasteur from pasteurization of milk, mm -hmm. which designed to, you know, kill the bacteria in the milk because it's just, you know, the, the thought is that that's not good for you. We, we knew very shortly after Pasteur's death that um, Pasteur was not completely being honest <laughs> uh, because Pasteur, while he was publishing all these, ex, you know, experimental results, etc., um, was at the same time writing down in his notebook exactly what he was doing. And he charged his family on his death not to publish his notes. But apparently, I think his grandson didn't really like <laughs> didn't really like Pasteur and um, decided to publish his notebooks. And so, from shortly after Pasteur's death, we could look at these notes and realize that actually Pasteur was being fraudulent in all of his experiments and quite often was a plagiarist. So, at that point, if attention had been paid to that, it would have been very clear that this whole germ theory was fundamentally flawed. But it's my contention again that by this stage, you know, the germ theory was far too beneficial to the pharmaceutical industry that was really being pushed and established significantly by the Rockefellers at that time in the early 20th century. Pasteur's contemporary was completely forgotten about. Now, Pasteur's contemporary was a guy called Antoine Béchamp, another Frenchman. Now, in contrast to Pasteur, who's developing the germ theory, as I say, Béchamp was really what he was doing was looking or es establishing what had been really the view of biology and medicine very different in many different spheres up until that point. You know, I'm talking here about Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, shamanic healing, all of that sort of thing. They didn't have a germ theory. And Antoine Béchamp sort of developed that way of thinking and working into a more of a, you know, modern scientific terms. And was he was a true scientist and was doing proper experimentation. And he was essentially saying that rather than this whole, you know, we're under attack model, that health is maintained and restored by nourishing the terrain of our body, which is providing the best inputs and creating the optimal conditions for the body to function effectively. So as you can imagine, this is all to do with things like making sure we get clean water, making sure we get plenty of sunlight, that we're getting the right nutrition, that we're feeding our microbiome that we know is so important to our health, getting exercise, you know, being out, going out in nature, having connections with humans and human community, you know, positive thoughts. So all of this sort of thing is you know, really what nourishes the terrain.
it's it's all about really the body being an ecosystem the body being a garden and so it's just a reflection of you know the macro world which is you know if we go into a a pristine forest where the ecosystems all you know functioning perfectly then we can see that everything has its niche there everything is functioning in its certain its particular niche to create a holistic and balanced whole our bodies are just a you know a microcosm of that macrocosm so for example we've got more cells by far in our body of bacteria and fungi than human human cells so in other words we're just we're just this whole mixture of microorganisms and you know functioning ecosystem so what we want to be thinking about is how do we nourish how do we tend that garden of our body just like a gardener tends his soil and so this is what Antoine Béchamp saw and developed through his science other scientists have gone on to develop, to develop that since but it's been very much not in the mainstream sphere once we understand that we can then start to think about well okay so people get out of balance you know they become ill as we call it illness well what's going to be what's going to cause people to get out of balance and dr tom cowan who i mentioned earlier he says that there's four reasons why people will get ill so it's going to be one or a multitude of these four reasons so the first one is very obvious injury so you get knocked over by a car you fall off your horse whatever you're you're you damage the body so that's a clear example of then the body has to repair that damage and you know goes into an illness state the second one dr cowan calls starvation and let's remember what the what the virologists do in the cell culture the viral culture they starve it if you remember they withdraw the nutrients so when we're starving it's often that we're not getting the right nutrients but it can also be a lot of other ways that we're starving perhaps we're being starved of affection or communication or we're being starved of oxygen um you know polluted air we're not breathing very well or we don't have clean water so we're being starved of you know good quality clean water so there's lots of ways we can be starved that's the second reason the third reason which is also a big top a big sort of yeah reason a bit, you know multifaceted is toxins or poisons um again let's think of the viral culture method after they've starved the culture they poison it okay so what are toxins well there's the obvious ones like cyanide arsenic heavy metals glyphosate which is so prevalent in our world other ones that maybe people aren't so aware of like harmful electromagnetic fields and then there's more emotional psychological things like fear which is massive the amount of fear is going to cause illness in our world stress which is very big you know just generally trauma negative thoughts they would all be things that we would put in as toxins or poisons because that that trauma or those you know negative thoughts that fear that stress it toxifies the body the body has a, a physiological response to those strong um, negative emotions or 
psychological states. There's now a fourth reason that, that Dr. Cowan's actually added since the COVID era. He thinks that this needs to be added as well. He calls that delusional beliefs. So this is thinking things that are nonsense are actually good for your health. So a good example of that is that viruses cause disease, <laughs> um, that humans are agents of infection. So we have to avoid them. We have to socially distance or that you need to wear a mask to be safe, um, this sort of thing. So we're getting an overview now. So this is the causes of illness. So then what is the nature of illness? So when we're ill, we've, we're being you know, compromised by one or more of these four things, these four uh, you know, reasons. And what does the body do? Well, it goes into process that we call illness. But what I'd like people to, I'd, I'd like to sort of encourage people to, to think of this is that it's the body's healing response. So generally in, in you know, generally in our, in our society, illness is seen as a bad thing. You know, you become ill. Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm no longer able to function. The encouragement is to go to the chemist or go to your doctor, get a pharmaceutical, which suppresses the symptoms you start to feel better in a short space of time and then you just get on with your life. Well, what that's doing is, you know, it's not allowing the body to go through the healing response that it's started. You're actually thwarting that therapeutic process. So you're not dealing with the underlying causes. This is why we call pharmaceutical medicine allopathic medicine, because it's just treating the symptoms. It's not treating the causes. So you're just suppressing the symptoms and then that ultimately means that, for example, if you're getting toxified, then the toxins are just going to build up. You know, you're not cleaning out that toxicity by doing whatever. It could be coffee enemas, could be removing yourself from EMF exposure. It could be trying to resolve your fear or stress and get maybe get some counselling for, you know, traumatic experiences you've had, whatever it might be. You know, unless you go through that process and are able to resolve those causes, then you're just going to build up <laughs> problems which are going to come back and bite you later down the line. And really, the classic example of that is, you know, you, you end up developing cancer. You know, the body's become so toxified that it, you get into a really <laughs> emergency, if you like, state where you, you know, I hopefully will not ignore, <laughs> ignore that anymore and really um, do a lot to remediate what's gone on at that point. So you would see your experience of shingles as a detoxification process? What? Yes, indeed, indeed. What I would say with shingles, having looked into it, um, along with all these other viral illnesses, is that, well, particularly with shingles, you know, I was so depleted, both physically and mentally, the, the body started breaking down. It's like the viral culture, you know, if you starve and poison the, the culture, it will break down. The cells will start breaking down. That's what we call illness. That was what was happening with me. Shingle, you know, and, and with each illness, it kind of manifests in a different way. With shingles, it's where you break out in all these, you know, uh, pussy pustules on the on the body and it's in, in a, you know for me it was on my scalp and on, on my face so it wasn't pleasant 
and really what the body's doing there is it's yeah weeping out a lot of toxins it's expelling a lot of toxins but also it's coming out through the skin in particular with shingles because i was deficient i can now see going back that i was deficient in collagen which is the basic protein of the body and so um, we get that through particularly for example uh, eating bone broth and you know other other animal products and because i was deficient in that that was where my weakness was so you know all of this person toxicity which you know really is about it was a physical expulsion but it was also kind of my body going through a you know a psychological emotional detox as well really now at the time i had no idea about any of this and or certainly from the you know this perspective i've now developed and i was you know i just had to go along with what the doctors were telling me was my best the best thing for me and uh, i was a said i ended up in hospital during this time so you know i don't blame any of these people and i had you know i feel they gave me the best care that they 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 felt in you know in their view was available so you know i don't have any bad feeling towards them but you know i took the, the conventional treatment which was an, what's called an antiviral drug in this case something called acyclovir and essentially as i've said all that did was thwart my body's therapeutic process and although the the you know the pussy stuff all cleared up it, i ended up getting chronic shingles as a result so in other words my body was wasn't able to fully go through this healing response and 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 properly be supported in doing that and so it was kind of i got a bit locked in to that that process in a kind of dysfunctional way so i've ended up with um constant itchiness where that those shingles um pustules you know were which is on the left side of my scalp and left side of my my you know forehead and so on so um i've been <laughs> doing a lot of different sort of uh, modalities and treatments to try and resolve that but so far i haven't found anything that has resolved that unfortunately but um i've learned a lot from that so it's been a great learning and a great teaching for me so in a way i have a lot to be grateful for for having developed shingles and the process that i went through and you even have things in the booklet about like when you have a splinter say and if you don't remove it so i'm always keen to remove them as, as people are because if i think it'll get infected if you don't and you have a contra narrative for that too right the the pus is something that's forcing out the splinter the invading body exactly exactly yes so what we really need to realize in all of this is that the body is extremely intelligent you know if we just allow it to do its thing and support it to do its thing the body will heal itself and it has you know an incredible intelligence and incredible array of mechanisms that it can do to that it can you know employ to do that but what, what's the basis for that then because I, i've never heard that about splinters before is that i mean is there some documentation of that as like experiment on it or anecdotes and... well uh uh, to be honest i wouldn't know this the detail of that i mean I, I believe that was dr cowan particularly sort of that was his perspective on the splinter thing but you know generally what we can think of is 
and particularly if we think about our modern world, we're just getting toxified every which way and every day, every day and every moment. We're subject to glyphosate exposure, which is probably the most pervasive toxin in the world. Um, and that's even if we're eating organic food with, you know, because glyphosate is water soluble. It's now water supply. You get, we get rain down on it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Another thing that probably people, a lot of people don't realize is that we're being subjected constantly to harmful man-made electromagnetic fields. There's a lot of fear and stress and trauma in our society. You know, the list goes on. Uh, car fumes as we walk down down the road, you know, we're constantly breathing in heavy metals. So we're constantly getting toxified. So it's no surprise that, you know, we're getting ill very often in our modern world. And the body then has this, what we can call, rather than an immune system, I like to call it instead, either a regenerative system or a detoxification system. Right body then has as i say mechanisms of how it can resolve these toxins how it can remove these toxins or resolve whatever needs resolving yeah you'd have to redefine what the immune system is wouldn't you so it's not fighting off invaders in the form of viruses it's something that's cleansing the body yes it's not exactly it's not the battlefield yes and so, I mean, yeah, we, we could continue calling it that, but I think it's not very helpful because it just really comes out of the germ theory way of viewing things. So the detoxification system. So a classic example is you have a cold, right, which is just a very mild illness, isn't it? But it's a mild detoxification. So we've got a little bit of toxicity, which the body wants to expel, so what it does is it develops a lot of mucus. So you're, you know, you're having to blow your nose constantly. Maybe you develop a fever. So what, what that's doing is it's breaking down the, the gel cytoplasm in the cell so that uh, from this very structured water, this crystalline water into a more bulk water, um, that's the whole topic in itself, so that the toxins can be flushed out more easily. You know, maybe we're urinating out, maybe we get diarrhea. So our livers, you know, working big time to get out toxins through the through the bile and into the into the bowels, and then we're um, expelling that through diarrhea. And you know, pus is just another example of that, where the body's kind of expelling something, and a splinter is yeah, a good example. So as I said, you know, we really need to be thinking about the body is extremely intelligent and if we just allow it to do its thing <laughs> rather than you know get in its way and support that then you know uh, we'll be in a much better place ultimately with regard to supporting that it sounds like some exciting possibilities arise if you embrace this paradigm if it is if it is indeed true what kind of possibilities arise to assist detoxification because I, I think you'd have to say then that detoxification sometimes the body is overwhelmed and hence like long-term chronic injury or or death occurs so have you investigated ways of assisting this detoxification process absolutely i think we have to be not only just allowing the body to detox naturally we have to be doing lots of detox protocols 
really on a regular basis because because as i said our modern in our modern world there's so many toxins out there and they're just getting more and more by the day the big thing that i would recommend for anybody and that i'm absolutely absolutely passionate about is coffee enemas mm -hmm. these are a great great way of detoxification and what essentially is what you're doing there is the coffee when it's taken in through the, the rectum it stimulates the liver to release all the toxins that it's got contained within it and expel them through the bile into the into the bowel and then you know you are you you're you're retaining that coffee for about 15 minutes so you're able to get at least a couple of runs at this due to the the blood circulating every seven seven minutes or so you get two sort of flushes of the liver in that time and of course that those toxins get flushed into the bowel and then after 15 minutes you release and you release all of that stuff so you're just giving the bowel a clean out to begin with which is a good thing to do anyway but the coffee in particular as i say stimulates the liver to also eject a lot of toxins and in combination with that the coffee enema causes the body to produce six times as much glutathione as it would normally do now glutathione is known as the detoxification chemical so in other words you um, saturate the body with then glutathione which is then you know going throughout the body and doing a cleanup process for you so coffee enemas are just absolutely fantastic i got into them at the beginning of this year and i started by you know doing a whole big cleanse over a period of about six weeks where i was doing them regularly and now i'm on a maintenance with that and i'm doing them probably one every five to six days you know i would say a minimum of one a week is a really good thing and something i'd highly recommend well are there any cautions around that just i'm so i know if i type coffee enema into google it's going to tell me this is not a sensible thing to do so well um, it's interesting the history of it because it's nothing new <laughs> coffee enemas were really dis discovered by a nurse i believe in the first world war um, who was dealing with lots of traumatized and you know both physically traumatized and psychologically traumatized patients of course and i i don't know quite how she had the idea of you know putting a, a coffee enema mix up somebody's rear end but she obviously did and we go from there now after that gerson came along and developed this in particular as a treatment for cancer and other chronic diseases but particularly cancer and it, it became known as the gerson therapy and in alternative medical spheres this is quite well known the gerson therapy and there what you're doing is you know the the rationale is that when you've got cancer you know you've you've got to a point where you're very very toxified and you've got to take some radical measures and the the, the measure that the gerson therapy recommends is doing six coffee enemas a day along with doing lots of juicing so you're kind of alternating really expelling all the crap out of the body um, and then putting lots of good stuff in the body through you know very healthy uh, juicing yeah a lot of people have experienced you know 
a relatively quick turnaround with that compared with other treatments. So what I'd recommend is if you're looking into this, I'd recommend that you you particularly go, I think there's the Gerson Institute or something along those lines, and you and you have a look at what they're saying as really the best practice in terms of coffee enemas. Okay. Well, thank you very much for all that. I, I, is, there, is there much more you would like to say, or do you think we're coming to a kind of concluding point? Well, um, I think a big thing that we need to realise that we need to talk about, because um, you mentioned chickenpox and so on, mm -hmm. I said that we had to go really, we had to, have to start from the historical context and go through and see what the causes of illness are and what illness is. It's the body's therapeutic response. Well, when, when we come to viruses, you know, the classic question I get asked is, yeah, but hang on a sec, you know, I, I went to an event, a party or whatever, and somebody was ill with certain symptoms and I came back home after that and I developed illness with the same symptoms and a whole load of other people at the party developed those symptoms, you know. So it's clear it's a virus, you know. How can it not be a virus? There's contagion going on. Mm -hmm. that, those sort of stories. Well, what Dr. Cowan would say to begin with is that, yes, we do experience contagion. And for example, in the case of chickenpox, we can we can see that quite often, you know, when one child has got chickenpox and another child is put into the same space as them, they can often go on to develop chickenpox. And in fact, people used to, at least used to, I don't I don't know whether they still do, but they used to have chickenpox parties. Yeah. So that their children could go on to develop chickenpox and get go through it sooner rather than later so we experience this thing called contagion now as i've already said if we're saying that's a virus then we have to show that there is actually a virus and it's causing then and that it's causing this disease well now we can see that that's never been done there's never been any virus found and there's never been shown that it causes disease so we can say that there's no viral contagion but I would say that there is definitely contagion <laughs> um, because, and if you think about it very, you know, just take a step back, we're intimately connected as human beings. You know, everything is interrelated, interdependent in our universe. So we're all part of the web of life. And so we're constantly <laughs> really in communication with each other and other bodies, whether we know it or not, on many different levels. So when one person gets ill, in other words, they, they go into a remediation process or a detoxification process, then the bodies of other people around them will pick up on that. And, they, and that body might think, well, that's, that person's going through a therapeutic response. They're going through a detox process. And actually, it's probably a good idea for me to go through the same thing. So that second person then may go on to develop a cold you know having been around a person who, with a cold or in case of a child it might be they go on to develop chickenpox having been around another child with chickenpox what dr cowan calls this this uh, phenomenon if you like he calls it bioresonance because it's all to do with 
the frequency, the energy, the vibration that we're giving off, and the other bodies are picking up on that. They're they're downloading that those frequencies and um, responding in whatever way as a result. Okay, I'm very interested in concepts like bioresonance. Okay, particularly because I'd be very interested in the idea of energy healing through the hands. Yes, I, I'm just going to put my money on the table, and I think it's a real phenomenon. I don't think it's reducible to a placebo effect. I think there's something there that is like fundamentally going on on a physical or energetic plane. Um, and just look, very interesting thoughts on how chicken, how bioresonance might be um, involved in these collective detoxification processes, and that's why parents observe effects when they they take their kids to chickenpox parties without there being a virus, but. I don't know if you'd agree, Daniel, but it does sound quite speculative as a, a way of explaining. And there's nothing wrong with speculative, but I think it's just, if it is, then it's good to acknowledge that's where it's at. Are we speculating here about what how chickenpox might be transferred if ideas of bioresonance? So it, it sounds sort of as speculative as saying a virus, right? Would it, do you disagree? Do you think there's a stronger case than that could be made? Well, um, <laughs> there's quite a lot I'd like to say on that. Mm -hmm. uh, firstly, uh, I agree with you. This is... A hypothesis mm -hmm. okay so when we in science we have a hypothesis we want to do experimentation obviously with controls to uh, thoroughly examine whether this is the case or not now the problem is that all the money for research and and, and so on is going into the viral research you know trillions of dollars have been spent on that trillions of pounds whatever since the whole beginning you know of the whole viral yeah and i think it would be fair to say there are there are obvious economic interests like that like you can sell a vaccine yeah. off the back of such research yeah. you can't sell a vaccine off the back of your research isn't well i don't know you can yeah. sell a coffee enema or something it's not quite the same financially so what, yeah i mean what we can say is we can as i say we can look back at the, all the papers on isolation and purification of a virus and we can see that this is a flawed method and that actually there's been no virus ever found. And so then we then we it opens up a whole world of, well, how does the body work? How do these things go on? Um, and that's, as I said earlier, when it gets exciting and, uh, you know, a lot of possibilities come about. But obviously, you know, we're just really at the beginning of figuring this all out in many ways. But equally, this is not new. <laughs> Um, if we go back to, as I said, pre-Louis Pasteur, if we look back at the, uh, you know, the ways that, that biology and medicine was done before that, through Chinese medicine, through Ayurveda, through shamanic healing, yeah, hands-on healing and so on, we can see that they were all based on energy. And really, the one thing that I feel encapsulates what I'm talking about with my book um, and terrain medicine is um, encapsulated by uh, a quote of Nikola Tesla, which is that if you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency and vibration. So this is, you know, the fundamental thing that everything is energy and resonance and matter is created out of that. You know, everything is waveforms. Um, our mainstream science, unfortunately, has got very fixated on the matter, on the particles, on the chemicals, and sort of dissecting that to greater and greater degree without 
seeing the bigger picture with the, which is everything is coming from frequency energy and vibration to begin with and then that's causing the forms the matter you know or or the or the the particular state that it's in so in my okay. view the, the new biology that we're moving into is shifting our perspective from you know as i say a very materialist reductionist mindset to um taking a step back and seeing that um everything starts as energy and resonance as i say okay so this this is more than just a based on terrain theory as the new paradigm really the new paradigm is as you say in your book out of consciousness comes matter rather than the other way around and that should be the basis of biology absolutely absolutely if you're interested in delving into this topic the first thing i'd recommend that you do is you read the science delusion by rupert sheldrake mm -hmm. i think he sets out 10 fundamental assumptions of modern science which are just kind of underlying assumptions which aren't ever questioned and really shows how <laughs> they're fundamentally flawed and the first one of those is that as i say that the the, the universe is just this materialistic universe where everything happens co by coincidence and we're just we're just the product of random, you know, random choice and random things that have gone a lot, gone on along the way. As Richard Dawkins says that we're just lumbering robots with hearts as pumps and brains as computers, this sort of thing. Mm. So no, we're, we're animate life, we're spirit in body, we're consciousness in matter, in form. And that's very much my philosophy and i feel is much more conducive to uh, a better life really when we see see things from that perspective okay daniel thank you very much i think that's a good point to conclude maybe give the details of where people can get your book yes well my website is called dandelion speaks that's dandelion as in the name of the plant <laughs> so dandelion speaks dot msvr.uk okay whatever platform people are listening to this on it will be linked below you've also done another book on global warming perhaps not from the perspective i would expect someone who lives in a kind of eco community to be coming from maybe a bit different than that indeed <laughs> so that sounds very interesting and maybe you'll grace us another time by coming on and talking about that I would love to, Richard. Yes, I'd be very, very happy to come back. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you.